You have to think not how does this appear to me. You have to think how does this appear to the people who are listening to him. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Patrick. And a couple weeks back, I got the chance to speak on the phone with Nathan J. Robinson, editor-in-chief at Current Affairs Magazine. Nathan's writing can be found in a variety of publications, from The Guardian to Huffington Post to Jacobin. And so far, he and the Current Affairs team have produced two books, one on Bill Clinton and one on Donald Trump, which can both be found through the Current Affairs website at currentaffairs.org. I found the magazine back in the spring, and I found it to be consistently vibrant and fun and smart and I knew it would be interesting to have Nathan on. Luckily we got to talk for a long time uh, so this will be part one and we covered a lot of things but seems to mostly be around this theme of writing about the news and writing about what's going on, representing what's going on. So I hope you enjoy part one of my talk with Nathan J. Robinson. I wanted to start by asking if it is a strange time to be a culture and politics writer. I don't know if it's ever not a strange time, but... Uh, it's incredibly strange time. It's incre- Yeah, it's a, an incredibly strange and difficult time because um, you've seen sort of all, a lot of the people who were trusted experts on what's going on um, uh, sort of be discredited in a certain way, right? There was a, there was a, a the 2016 election really changed a lot of things for, for um, in, in, with the media, where um, there was a great de- degree of certainty that the outcome was going to go one way, and then it went the other way. And the question is, well, if all of the people who are supposed to know what's going on don't seem to actually know what's going on, what does that what does that mean? Um, right, right. Who who can I listen to? Who, and and you have to sort of figure things out for yourself now. Yeah, and and this like this is what makes me think about the interesting role that that a publication like Current Affairs, the the role that it's it seems to be filling. So I'm really interested in the conception of your first conception of the publication and how it was. I guess start with the what you saw was lacking in other publications, and you kind of alluded well, you kind yeah, of alluded to that. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So um, the first, there are a few things that I thought were missing. Um, the the first thing is that. I think a lot of political publications are not particularly compelling to read, um, and that's for a number of reasons. First, because they're often superficial. Um, second, because a lot of people who are partisan are just speaking to people who are already on their side. Um, and, and I ask myself, well, why is it that I'm on the left, but I don't really enjoy reading left-wing right. media? <laughs> and... Uh, and that seems strange to me. I should be the audience for this stuff. And it's because it doesn't really challenge me and it doesn't really right. help me think through problems. And uh, so I wanted something that would something that would get at people's unanswered questions, the things that they want but never get out of the things they read. And oftentimes that's things like, um, well, how did you... You're telling me what you think, but how did you come to figure out what you think? So oftentimes what we do in current affairs is I'll ask a question like, well, why are public schools important? Or, well, why do so many people hate Charles Murray? And I'll go through and I'll try and figure out the what I think about that, kind of putting aside my preconceptions and then working through the position and you know, anticipating the counterarguments and responding to those. 
And, and that's something that isn't done nearly enough. Uh, we, we are unashamedly partisan, but we also try and like uh, be reflective and self-critical in a certain way. Right, right. That's one thing I notice about current affairs. It doesn't seem to ever accept what the news is, basically. It always is providing some kind of analysis that you don't expect, and that I think for, if you are used to, like I was, uh, a certain kind of news or level of news it seems almost paradoxical, a lot of the things. You guys are on the left, but there is a, there's another kind of, there's another side of the left, the, the kind of resistance left, who would find it maybe confusing that you, uh, yeah. you're on the left, but you, you know, you talk about right. it. You, you don't, you're not quite receptive to Hillary Clinton or Obama. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if, you're, if, what, you're, if what you're loyal to is a set of principles, right, which if you're on the left, it's the principle that, you know, things, society should be more fair and people shouldn't suffer unnecessarily, then your loyalty is to the principles rather than to a party or to a set of people. So if those people or that party are violating those principles or you don't think they are acting in ways that are furthering those principles, then you have to be critical of that because ultimately you have to care more about your values than about like a particular it's not it's not about your team it's only about your team to the extent that your team is doing the right thing yeah and that's one of the most i, I was trying to find the best example of this confusion and i think i was reading your book super predator that is mm. about uh bill clinton and uh i was thinking about what you think the news is avoiding and this is basically Fox News you might expect they would love an opportunity to go back on Bill Clinton or even criticize Bill Clinton at the time all of this was happening throughout his presidency yeah. and of course during Hillary's presidency anything to you would think anything to knock Hillary they would maybe latch on to right. but uh, I guess when it comes to these more Republican you know traditionally conservative decisions and uh, things that align with past Republican choices and it seems like basically it's an issue that I think both sides are very mysteriously uh, silent about. And the perspective that you uh, and current affairs seems to yeah. have on it is something that uh, you don't, you, d you certainly would not hear. But whatever the mainstream news yeah. aligns with uh, prevents them from approaching yeah. that. That topic. Yeah, if you take Bill Clinton, right, I mean, so Bill, Bill Clinton kind of had a strategic calculus when he was um, uh, running for president, um, which was, well, I can adopt selectively conservative policies in order to make myself seem, distance myself from liberalism, which is a toxic brand, and um, that will be politically successful for me. And it worked very well for him. Um, and, you know, conservatives aren't really going to point out that he did that because they want to, they hate Bill Clinton. They want to oppose him. So they're not going to say, well, you cut welfare and you expanded the criminal justice system because that makes Bill Clinton sound conservative and they, they, that, that conflicts with their worldview. And people in the Democratic Party don't like it when you criticize Bill Clinton for conservative things he did. Um, because for the same reason that people who like Obama don't like it if you say he was soft on Wall Street, because it's seen as attacking right. your own, and it's seen as, well, I mean, people have said, are you a Republican? Because you, you're so vicious towards uh, people in the Democratic Party. But the, what that means is because neither the Democrats nor the conservatives want to make that criticism, because it, um, 
uh, it doesn't really fit with either of their worldviews, uh, no one ends up making it. So uh, what I wanted to do with that book was go through and say, well, uh, let's talk about Bill Clinton's record on, on welfare and on criminal justice and on uh, Rwanda, and, and, and let's, in, in a non-partisan way, um, and I recognize some of the good things he did, but I'm also very, very critical of the way that I think he was willing to adopt policies that I think are very harmful uh, for the sake of increasing his political capital. Um, and I think a fair-minded person has to be willing to discuss that. I think that's really right. important, even if you are a Democrat and you're very loyal to the party, even if you like the Clintons, which I understand why people do. Um, you know, if, if you can't avoid, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want to avoid discussing um, topics that might have unsavory implications for people that you like. Uh, I find a similar thread in your book about Trump. You begin the book saying that this is not a book about uh, Donald Trump as a human being. Then expand on how you, you feel that you don't know what purpose writing about Trump has come mm. to serve in a lot of yeah. news and, and media. Yeah, so thinking about the purpose of... Uh, I mean, I think a lot about what writing is for. Uh, and I think so much political commentary exists because people want to say what they think. Right. And you go, well, yeah, you want to say what you think, but what are you actually trying to do? And I think about that question a lot because I don't want to waste my time writing words that nobody's going to read or that are going to change anybody's mind or that I'm just, you know, shouting in the echo chamber. Right? I, I want to think about, well, what, what, what is actually valuable to say? And that means you ask questions like, well, what is the purpose of this particular kind of criticism? And I think with writing about Trump, one of the problems is that there's so much, so, so, so much to criticize about Donald Trump, right? And, and it's just endless uh, because he's just a horrific human being. Um, but what, thinking about what is the purpose of writing critical pieces about Donald Trump? Are you trying to persuade people who support Donald Trump? Right. Are you trying to remind people who already don't like him? And this is why I think it's actually, you know, people, people could have, have criticized me for spending a disproportionate amount of time critiquing the Democratic Party. Um, and the reason I do that is because I think that is actually constructive criticism, because the Democratic Party is something that I actually have hoped for. Um, I actually think that if you talk about what they're doing wrong and how they can fix it, um, that might have productive consequences in terms of building an, a, an effective left political party. Um, if you're discussing Donald Trump, it's like, well, I could point out all the things that are horrible about him, but what is it? How is that going to help? Like, I, I mean, I, I think someone should do it, um, but I think once you've done it a certain am uh, amount of times, um, there, there's sort of diminishing returns on it. I was going to ask about that, the flack you must receive or the problems people might have with your work and uh, current affairs at large. There was an article in uh, around August in response to Charlottesville, but it's not a take necessarily on Charlottesville, but a take on how people were writing and choosing to write about Charlottesville and portraying the events that took place. And uh, you did not write that, but your writer, and as a result, you being editor-in-chief, uh, yeah. received those multiple complaints from, I think, I think Jason, <laughs> yeah. Jason Wilson, and you show his emails. Yeah, the Guardian, the, yeah. Right, right, right. Again, this is another example of what, what are people's intentions in writing about Charlottesville? 
I don't know what you think about yeah. not just Trump, but everything that has come as a result of Trump, and if the intentions yeah. in writing are are similar, what kind of like mistakes you're finding, what kind of criticism you're getting sure. for taking this this uh, yeah. perspective on how to write about it. Well, so the, yeah, so the original piece was called How to Write About Nazis, and it was talking about what, what the sort of questions, and that was by Amber Lee Frost, and um, right. uh, she was talking about what responsible journalism looks like in the era of Trump. And, and, and one of the things that she was saying that was tremendously important is even as we recognize that the far right posed a, a monstrous threat that needs to be countered, right. what you have to be careful about is not letting your desire to destroy the far right influence your depiction of the facts. And one of the things that she was uh, trying to caution reporters against is in sort of building up a threat as being worse than it is. It's bad, but uh, making sure that you keep everything in proportion. And the reason she had criticized The Guardian's reporting is because The Guardian had said something about how the far right had, like, um, the beginnings of a street fighting force. The rudiments, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the rudiments of a a street fighting force. And she thought that language about a street fighting force was too much suggesting that they're like, they're marching in, uh, you know, they're, they're marching through your city, they're like the brown shirts, this is, this is 1933 in Germany. And the cautioning reporters not to conclude, not to scare people into thinking it's necessarily 1933 in Germany. Um, so, I mean, you know, and then, and then you know, uh, the reporter who had written that got very upset with me, right. he sent me a bunch of emails. You know, I, I, I regret how I handled that because I just got so frustrated with him emailing me all the time. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, all right, if you want a response, I'll give you a response. And I wrote right. sort of a, a, you know, a, an angry defense of, our, of, of, of what we'd said. Um, mm-hmm. But so I, I wish that could have been resolved amicably. But, um, but I, I, think, I think her initial criticism was a defensible one, and, and it's, it's consistent with the philosophy of our magazine, which is, that we believe that even the people on our side need to be very, very careful about making sure they keep everything in proportion um, and and don't um, don't exaggerate, uh, and because that's essential in order to figure out where the threats are and how you address them. Right, right. There was another similar in a similar vein, a response to an original article. Uh, you wrote an article called "Thinking Strategically." about free speech and violence. And uh, again, you received uh, some kind of flack. What's interesting, though, is that this is also an example of this kind of nuanced internal criticism of the left, which it doesn't seem yeah. like you guys are afraid to do. But what, what have you noticed about the left's own response to this? What do you think? Yeah. What, what do you think? The, what mistakes are people making, do you think? Well... I think, so the article, yeah, as you said, it's called Thinking Strategically About Free Speech and Violence, and that's precisely the root of what the criticism was, right? right. And it was about these debates about, well, do you, no, no platform for fascists, right? Whether, whether you should give people on the far right, whether you should allow them to speak, or whether you should shut them down, um, you know, whether not Miley Nobles should be allowed on campus, whether you should punch Nazis, whether, yes. you know, when violence is justified, that sort of thing. And the, big, the, the, the main point uh, of the article was, okay, 
all of the debate, regardless of what your position is, regardless of whether you think it's okay or not to shut down right-wing speakers, we need to make sure to have the debate on, a, on productive terms. And the key here is to think about strategy, to think, well, what is the most effective way to counter them? And I wanted to bring up the possibility that actually that is not the most productive thing. Regardless of the justification, I wanted to get away from this question of whether it's justified and, and think more about what, what, what we should be doing in order to build progressive political power. Um, and, you know, I, 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 and so I, I think the, the, the main thing is that if, if I had to talk about what I am frustrated that people, that people miss, uh, it is uh, that if you if you say if you make arguments like that, you what you're saying is we should think strategically. But what you what people hear oftentimes is, um, oh, so you believe in free speech for Nazis? Um, right. And this it's 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 a problem. It's a problem when and and we have the same thing. That it, we often have the same thing where the the thing you're saying is a little more nuanced than than what it comes across as to people. So so. It, but, but at the same time, I've actually been very encouraged by the responses to a lot of our writing because I try and engage productively in dialogue with people. And, and I, I found that most people who responded to that article, even critically, they were engaging with my points. Right, like they right. could disagree with the points, but they were engaging with them. So, so I, I, actually, um, I, I actually think if you, if you do these things directly, you can have good, good discussions. Right. And even you say in the article, uh, the in the response article of somebody, it was it was you yeah. responding to a criticism that you thought was particularly uh, or potentially widespread or understandable, even like logical. You say that you, I think you even maybe commend them for participating in what you're suggesting. They are they're presenting yeah, they're presenting exactly. a strategy or presenting some kind of plan, you know, beyond. Yeah. So. So, you know, I say, if, so if I say I don't think this is strategically wise and someone else comes back and says, well, I do think this is strategically wise and here's why, well, then we're having a productive discussion because then we're discussing something that, that, that on, the, on the same, we're on the same page at least. Uh, we may differ, but we, we are talking, um, roughly we both agree on the terms of the discussion. Um, but if I say I don't think this is strategically wise and you say, so you think Nazis should have free speech? Then, then we're not really we're not really hearing one another. So I, I yeah, that was a and he launched a very strong criticism of my argument, um, but I liked it because I thought that uh, I thought that we had moved towards the kind of conversation that we should be having. And I wanted to ask uh, what what your view is on I guess this a thing that I took away from Amber's article is this and and from your response to Wilson was this kind of the sense I had after reading uh, and after you kind of showing his writing, his Guardian article, the sense that he was trying or inflating these events. He, he, like, he wanted to get something out of it. He wanted to, to frame things a certain way. And I want to ask you to talk about that, uh, this, this framing problem in, when it comes to most of the media uh, but yeah. talk about that with how you yeah. how you feel approaching so, how things are and uh, you know comparing those two. 
Yeah. So I think, okay, so, I mean, I, I compared what, what was going on in that Guardian article to what I think uh, one of the problems that I have is what the Southern Poverty Law Center does, because I think it's the same kind of way of thinking about the right, which the Southern Poverty Law Center is all, it devotes itself to combating hate groups, right. which is a great thing. Hate groups are awful. Um, but what they do oftentimes is, in subtle ways, they kind of exaggerate the organizations that are very much on the fringe and don't have popular support. So one of the things they do is, instead of telling you how many people are in the Ku Klux Klan, they tell you how many chapters the Ku Klux Klan has. So the Ku Klux Klan has a ton of chapters all around the, all around the country. Well, if you examined all of those chapters, you'd find that a ton of them have like five people. Right. So if you don't tell people how many people are in, if you just tell them the number of chapters, then you can make it look like a really widespread phenomenon. And I think that's slightly irresponsible because I think it's very important. Like, I'm not trying to downplay how serious the Klan is, um, but I also think it's very important to have an accurate understanding. Uh, and, and one of the things, the truths that is, kind of missed oftentimes by people who write about the far right and the threat of the far right is that explicit white supremacist groups have really been losing support continuously for the last 30 years. Um, they, they, very few people, very, very few people open, openly identify as white supremacists these days. Right. Um, it, it, I mean, the, the left kind of won that, that battle in terms of the fact that it is, it, uh, uh, nobody wants to be a racist. Right. Um, you, you, and you can tell this because the, even everyone on the right always denies that they're a racist. Well, it's because the left won that they have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. that, that like, they, they could just say, I, I mean, if this was 1950, like, they, they would, like I'm a racist wouldn't, wouldn't be a problematic thing to say. Um, so, you know, I think it's very important to acknowledge our victories and not to always think that, well, the Nazis are on the brink of taking power. We've actually succeeded in a number of ways. How do you, how do you uh, actually see, how do you see it then? Could you put it in a broader context? I mean, is there something to be said about uh, resurging white supremacy? And I don't think you, you necessarily doubt that because you acknowledge, of course, you say, no. you, you know, Trump, Trump got elected and that is a, at least a sign of something. But what do you think is a more careful accurate way to put that into like yeah. broader historical well it's complicated because on the one hand um trump obviously in part or even in large part represents a kind of uh white backlash to the right. obama era um uh, and 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 that kind of anger and i i think that's very very difficult to deny i think it's important to draw very subtle distinctions between i mean oftentimes trump republican fascist, Nazi, and Klan are all kind of merged in the way people talk, as if those are all kind of indistinguishable things. Yeah. But they're not. Um, you know, the, 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 the American Nazi Party, that has very, very few members. Um, <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan, not doing particularly well these days. Um, and so I think the important thing to recognize and the thing that can be obscured if you lump all these things together is the way that the real threat is from uh, mainstream American Republican conservatism, which has, a, which has always had a strong element of maintaining 
the um, uh, power and privilege of uh, wealthy white people. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's the backlash of that force, but it's, it's, it's largely the business community more than it is like the, the Nazis. Um, you know, Trump represents in part um, American capitalism. Uh, you know, retrenching its hold. Um, he, he, he's, he, all his people are people who are, who are billionaires. Um, like half of his cabinet, uh, 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 have, uh, like billionaires or the children of billionaires or, I mean, right. and, and those people don't particularly care about race issues. Trump used race issues in order to get elected, right? He, he used people's racial fears and anxieties. Um, but what Trump is doing in office largely is, um, you know, trying to cut people's taxes, get rid of Obamacare, get rid of environmental regulation, um, do all of the things that the business community wants, um, and fulfilling the Grover Norquist dream of strangling the government in the bathtub or right. whatever it is. Um, so I think there are subtle distinctions that you have to keep in mind, though, if you want a, an accurate picture. So you have to say, well, to what degree is this racial? Is this actually the Ku Klux Klan? Uh, right. I, I don't know that it always is. It's, you know, but, but social phenomena are difficult to diagnose, and it can, it can be hard to, to figure out the role to which it's fair to ascribe Trump's presidency to the victory of white supremacy versus the victory of large economic forces. Do you, do you feel that this, I guess we're kind of talking about this, yeah, I mean, you say all that, and yet the media, or at least the surface level of uh, most American media, just fails completely to to paint that picture. Uh, why do you think there's this short-sighted, uh, I think you mentioned, or you call it sometimes like hysterics or sensationalism, what is uh, where do you think their goals are aligned? Is it a uh, well? You, you have a uh, an article in where you say the mass media has no credibility, and I think you say hating CNN is a healthy and rational perspective. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so I want I want you to to maybe expand. Do you think do you feel there's something s- sinister, or is it just stupidity, or is it? Well, I. Yeah, you know, sinister always sounds so conspiratorial, um, and 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 there's always with anything there's a question of yes. to what degree is this malevolence versus stupidity. There was always that question with George W. Bush: is he right. stupid or evil? Um, and uh, to some degree, it doesn't really matter. Um, the question is: is what they're doing bad, and how do you right, stop it? Right. And because uh, uh, you can't diagnose people's inner psychology very easily. Um, I, I, so let's take CNN, for example. I don't think there's... Let's see. So I, I think you have to be very careful not to let the fact that Trump hates CNN mean that you like CNN. Right. Right. It's not like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. My, you, the, in fact, what I pointed out in the CNN article uh, that I wrote is that there is a kind of symbiosis between Trump and CNN. Jeff Zucker and Trump, Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, um, and Trump go way back. They've been friends for a long time. And their rivalry is kind of a friendly rivalry, honestly, because CNN is getting the best ratings it's ever had right now. I mean, yeah. it has been since the beginning of Trump's campaign. It's been fantastic for them. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, Trump lashes out of them and they hate him and he hates them. But also, like, they, the drama of his presidency is, has been fantastic for their, for their rating. And that's why I think, and that's dangerous, I think, because I think the drama of his presidency, obsessively paying attention to it, is destructive to our brains. Right. Um, it prevents us from keeping our eyes on what matters about thinking about. It allows Trump to set the agenda, like whatever ha- is happening in Trump world that day is what we're talking about, rather than whatever we think is important to talk about. You have uh, another article, which I thought was, um, this is, I think this is one of my, f- the first articles I came across, uh, but it was in, it's called In Defense of Liking Things. And I think this <laughs> can connect to, uh, we're talking about, this, uh, I don't want to say agenda of the media, but the priorities or and the consequences of this, or you know what they're doing wrong. And I think, to to what extent do you think this leads to uh, something like uh, so Wilson's uh, Guardian articles, like Wilson's or others, where they are to some extent trying to paint a certain picture, and they're you might say that realistically there's not as much a concern about the KKK as, yeah. you know, uh, just because Trump's elected, you might still uh, say we should be calm about it, but you turn on CNN and there you see these violent kind of shaky, um, yeah. you know, footage of, of men marching with torches, angry, it's scary. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The same thing with, with this article, uh, In Defense of Liking Things, you talk about a New Yorker article which posits that fidget spinners are a perfect symbol of uh, Donald <laughs> Trump's America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this idea of like not letting, if, if, if making sure that you're very careful about your analyses to the extent that I mean nobody's actually objective, but right. trying to be careful at least in your analysis of the facts, um, so that you don't end up having like totalizing vision, right? right. And and so that would be the link between those two things, right? Where you say like. The fidget spinner is the symbol of Trump, Trump's America. Like, and, and that, that suggests to me, you can't just see the fidget spinner as something innocuous, some innocuous little fun thing right. that we do. It has to symbolize something, because everything is Trump's America. He's all-consuming. And the same way with the far right, you, you think, like, well, the far right, like, some people say, like, well, America is white supremacy. That's, like, consumes every part of it. Right. And if the, and and if you blow it up to where like look the Charlottesville thing they ki- they killed a woman so it it was horrific um, it, it was very uh, I mean it was truly truly horrific um, at the same time um, the like a lot that was one weekend in a Virginia town it's not every day in every town in America right um, those guys with torches they got coverage because. They were scary looking, um, but there's a danger that you um, can end up building up the far right's own image of itself if you disproportionately cover them. Like Richard Spencer, for example, he's a nobody, right? He he really is. He doesn't have that much influence. His his think tank, the National Policy Institute or whatever, I don't even mm-hmm. think they exist. I think that's like I I think they're only on paper. I've never seen them actually mm-hmm. do it. I don't even know if they have an office outside of his apartment. Right, like he's not actually an influential force in American life, but he has about twenty magazine profiles right. um, because it's kind of irresistible to profile the Nazi. So I think there is this risk of missing 
all of the parts of the country that aren't politics and aren't the right. Like, I go out every day into the beautiful city of New Orleans where I live, Mm -hmm. and I don't really see much going on that's that different than what it was four years ago. We've got serious problems here. The terrible poverty, the prison system is the uh, the highest incarceration rate in America, which means it's the highest in the world. Uh, But that's been true for a very long time. That was true under all the eight years of Obama. So, yeah, it's a huge change, but also, like... I don't, I don't see that change. That change is not everything, and it's not everywhere, and it's not all-consuming. Right, right. And this, uh, I, think, I think this ties into uh, either writing or activism with some kind of goal. The, in that same article, going back to thinking strategically about free speech and violence, you, are, you bring up uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. You just brought up Spencer, but, you know, so you bring up punching, the whole punching a Nazi thing, but you also bring up... Yeah. Uh, Yiannopoulos and Berkeley, and uh, this this similar or this this I, I don't know if you, how you would characterize it as uh, perhaps like short sighted or uh, th- this kind of dwelling on you you say dwelling on uh, questions of legitimacy about using mm-hmm. violence or uh, oh, yeah. yeah or, or uh, in uh, Yiannopoulos's case yeah. giving people a platform as they say so, well, yeah. I, I can't stand the word legitimacy. I really hate it because I, I think it's often used, um, well, you don't want to debate that person because then you're giving them legitimacy. Right. Or you don't, um, you don't want to, you, you can't um, engage with this argument because you would be legitimizing Give them the platform, I think yeah. legitimizing is a really dangerous term because it's like these things have legitimacy by virtue of the fact that they have a huge political movement, um, uh, that, that they're very successful. Like, there's no, like, if I withhold my granting of legitimacy, that doesn't hurt it very much. Mm-hmm. So I think, actually, that word, that idea of not giving legitimacy has been very dangerous in terms of keeping us from effectively trying to counter ideas that are pernicious. Um, you know, people say, uh, the classic example is, well, you shouldn't legitimize global warming, uh, you know, the climate change deniers by engaging with them. Well, actually, I actually think that the left needs to do a lot more um, engaging with them because, frankly, they're in power. Um, so you need, to, you need to do a lot more to try and convince them and to try and um, uh, uh, rebut everything they're saying and, 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 and make the case to people. And um, I think, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to give legitimacy to X, Y, or Z, um, I, I think that ends up being very counterproductive. Yeah, I think uh, I mean I think there is power derived. Uh, maybe Ben Shapiro is another mm-hmm. good, better example. He went to Berkeley. I think he said uh, something about how Hurricane Shapiro. There's a video called Hurricane Shapiro takes Berkeley by storm. He was anticipating. Oh my God. He was anticipating some kind of danger, some kind of Yiannopoulos reaction. Right. I, I don't know. I, I think it actually went okay. He was at least allowed to speak, but. There is at least listening to Shapiro. There definitely seems to be a sense that there's a deepening of resentment or or power or purpose yeah. in uh, in this sense that you're no one you, no one's going to listen to. No one wants to listen to that. There's this whole side of people who are um, weak in their arguments and trying to just yeah. shut you out and trying to not hear you. So I think 
think it's very so. Okay, I think, for example, it's very hard for conservatives if they if they actually have to defend, for example, their position on healthcare. I think it's very very difficult for them to defend. Why? Because it's incredibly unpopular, right? right? None of them have a solution to American healthcare. Like they don't. If, if like they, they can't articulate a vision for the healthcare system that doesn't involve a lot of people um, right. who are who have no money suffering a lot. Okay, mm. but so so that's an argument that they have a they have a hard time winning if they actually have to debate on those grounds. However, if someone like Ben Shapiro uh, has to gets to have the discussion about whether Ben Shapiro should get to talk. Uh, that is an argument that he uh, has a greater advantage uh, uh, in, because of what you notice is a lot of these guys, they have managed to make the whole debate about whether they should get to speak rather than the thing that they were planning to say. Mm-hmm. And Milo Yiannopoulos is the classic example of this, where he literally, his entire appeal was, leftists want to shut me down, right? His right. book was called Dangerous. Every single chapter is why blank hates me. What like it was why leftists hate me. Why feminists hate right. me. Why you know, and so his entire appeal came from backlash. If you actually asked Milo Yiannopoulos to debate healthcare policy, right, it would be a catastrophe. Right, he can't actually defend conservative principles. You saw this at, at the last time when he went to Berkeley and he actually did get to speak. What did he do? He ran. He actually got to speak, and he spoke for about ten minutes, and he ranted about Colin Kaepernick, and he left. And uh, when these guys actually do get to speak, if nobody's shutting them down, you know, it turns out that oftentimes they're not saying things that are particularly that you really need to be that afraid right. of. And th- yeah, to what extent do you think that there's this? Uh, there certainly is, uh, may, uh, at least in Ben Shapiro's mind, a picture of liberals who or leftists who are uh, irrational unwilling to listen and not to say that this total there's no ounce of truth to that but to what to what extent do you think uh it has grown into something that it's not and i know you can uh talk about the articles in which you you do criticize antifa uh or they at least the idea of antifa uh you know these are very complicated murky kind of unclear things that but yeah. but people talk about them as if uh we all we all know or it's, it's this very like concrete uh group or, or something uh, so w- to what extent do you think this is a, a kind of uh, a myth or you know so i mean well you know that the thing is that it's both true and not true because you can't, every generalization you can make like that is simultaneously true and not true. There are plenty right. of people on the left who literally will say, no, I don't want, I don't believe that Ben Shapiro should be engaged with, I don't, I think he should be shut down. There are plenty of people like that. And then he says, ah, oh, that's the left. But then that's not the entire left, obviously. And in fact, mm-hmm. when you poll university students, the vast majority of university students don't believe um, that these uh, even and, and university students skew very liberal, uh, right. but the vast majority of them don't believe that, that speech speech should be shut down. Um, so uh, it's a distorted picture of the left to say that. I mean, it's just that Antifa are very visible. Um, right. uh, and and what I want to do, one of the things I want to do with kind of ad is prevent them from being able to make this argument, right? I, I did a very deep dive into Charles Murray's work because Charles Murray built, has built so much on, oh, well, they, uh, they call me a racist, but they're never willing to engage with my arguments. Right. Um, 
And so I wanted to say, no, okay, let's hear your arguments. And I went through them systematically and showed why they're all crap. Um, and I think if you do that, then they can't really, then they're kind of stuck. Um, so I want to make sure that they can't just go, ah, the left doesn't want to hear our case. I want to go, no, let's hear it. Let's have a discussion. If you, if you want um, to have a discussion about the facts, let's have a discussion about the facts. And I right. think if, if more of us on the left did that, um, I think it would, would sap them of a very powerful rhetorical weapon that they use a lot. Right. And I noticed something. Uh, it's interesting because I can, I can empathize with what is appealing about these uh, arguments made like this. Like in the case that your opponent exists or your enemy exists as they set it up, you know, the, the, there's this understanding you can have for these people. It's like, yeah, if someone like that existed, this is a totally insane and irrational. But there's something also embarrassing when you come to realize that they're, you know, to call it a straw man, they're inventing arguments that they're fighting against. It seems like, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Paul Joseph Watson and uh, the, you know, conservative oh, yeah. Twitter. Every time I, I see things that, uh, you know, he tweets or, or writes about, it seems... You could almost see yourself falling for it, but then you can, you you, you discover this 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 mm-hmm. uh, subtle but but I think a, a massive flaw in uh, in reasoning. Do you think that yeah. in in both uh, on both I guess ends of the spectrum of political writing, uh, there's this uh, yeah. there's that that phenomenon of you know kind of responding to things that are maybe you you haven't you haven't exactly analyzed what totally. what you're responding to to begin with i think a lot of people fall victim to uh even i uh, you know even shapiro is part of that but his listeners i imagine you know they're they get on board with something that's not quite precisely defined yeah so if, if there's a um uh, that's one of the things that i've realized is just how persuasive right wing right wing arguments right. are right they're incredibly persuasive charles Murray is incredibly persuasive um, right. if, if, if you listen to him, the things he says, they sound like they make sense. Um, and he, he, I, I was just, in fact, I, I've just got in the new current affairs that we just done, I have a review of Dinesh D'Souza's new book, which is mm-hmm. called, uh, The Big Lie, The Nazi Roots of American Leftism. Now that book is going to be written off by everyone on the left. They haven't read it. Uh, they don't think it's worth reading or legitimizing because it's just so self-evidently stupid. But I read it, and let me tell you, it is not self-evidently stupid. That book is a very, very cleverly crafted piece of propaganda. Right. Um, that, the argument that he makes has a huge, huge central flaw, um, right. which is, and that is very obvious. Um, and, but if you, what you underestimate is how well he actually puts the book together. The book is, if you read that book, I read the book, and I was, and at the end, I was going, oh my God, that was kind of persuasive, right? And then I had to sit and think about it, and then I went, oh, okay, no, that's not persuasive at all, and this is why. Right. Um, but, if you, <laughs> but if you're not committed to doing that, I totally see how these people find an audience. And yeah. if the left isn't interested in actually going through and explaining to people why there's a big flaw in this, um, people will be persuaded because let me tell you, Dinesh D'Souza is persuasive. Mm-hmm. He is smart, um, I, I, and I don't think that these people should be written off. 
Yeah. What did you, I was going to ask what you discovered in... You basically took this approach to Trump in the book, I think. Uh, basically, I don't know to what extent you think he is also persuasive for you. Obviously, he, there are similar considerations there about his his message. Um, I don't know, in, in a similar vein, what you found in your... Uh, I guess you could talk about first how you conducted your research for uh, yeah. Trump, Anatomy of a Monstrosity, the, that kind of approach you were trying to take as it relates to this... Uh, really understanding and getting basically in, uh, you were saying, the phenomenon of Trump, uh, like the mindset surrounding Trump, this kind of... Yeah. I mean, I, he's an example of a guy. Right? He was underestimated in the beginning. And, you know, I I, I mean, I wrote in February 2016 that he'd probably be president um, if the Democrats nominated Clinton. And, um, and, and that's because I actually listened to his speeches and watched his rallies. Um, and if you did that, you know, people on, uh, people on the left are just dismissing him as this clown. But actually, you can't, you have to, one of the key things you have to do is you have to think not how does this appear to me. You have to think how does this appear to the people who are listening to him, right? And, and that's the crucial thing. And this, this actually affected the way people perceived the presidential debates. I watched one of the presidential debates with a room full of liberals in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and everyone came away from the debate going, oh, my God, she wiped the floor with him. That was an embarrassment for Trump. He's dead. It's a catastrophe. He's a horrible debater. Now, me and another person in the room, we talked afterwards. We went, are you sure? Were they watching the same debate we were? Because... The debate they were watching was who got the most points and who debated the best. But the debate we were watching was, well, yeah, but how how are voters feeling while they watch this? And the way that voters, we, we were like, well, Trump actually came across looking like he held his own. Clinton came across looking kind of smug uh, and self-satisfied. I don't know. I his statistics wrong. But he always gets all his statistics wrong. The point is, like, how do people perceive him? And so I was trying to think, and so the reason that I say Donald Trump is a formidable politician is because he is a formidable politician. Like, he's very good with a crowd. He's very charismatic with the crowd. The people who like him really like him. 